Hey, I'm Gina from Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Jennifer from Bethel Park, PA. Hey, I'm Alex from Rochester, New York. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. Thank you. I'm Jesse Thorne. Today on the show, I talk to Stephen Merchant. You know, just a couple tall guys hanging out. Oh, and also he co-created The Office. I'm not used to, as a man six feet three inches tall, interviewing a guest who could probably dunk on me. Six foot three, that's embarrassing. You I want know. to try harder. It's try harder. I've made it all the way to six foot seven. Oh, jeez. Six foot three, well, I was probably that height, uh, I guess, early 90s. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So you've had 20 years, you're 20 years ahead of me, essentially. In many ways, yeah, yeah. Uh, I can confidently say that six foot four is the optimum height for a man. Really? I would say that's that's where you're Based just, on what? Well, because I've been six foot four. Uh-huh. And when I was six foot four, I was like, yeah, this is cool. This is masculine. You know, you're tall, you're striking, but you're not, it's not absurd. You're not, you know what I mean? You're not making a statement. But when you get to six foot seven, it's just absurd. Now it's like I'm, I, what am I, like mocking? I mean, it's, it's, you know what I mean? It's like, it's just preposterous. No one needs to be this height. I am hitting my head on things. I've got to, you know, bend through a lot of doorways and there's nothing that will fit me, no beds. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's pain. It's a headache. It's bullseye. Coming up, my interview with Stephen Merchant. He says he didn't get into comedy to become popular, or even to please an audience. Did it sort of for himself? The urge was never the sort of buzz of the laughter. It's this sort of exercise of it that's fascinating to me, the, the, the challenge of it. When he made his first TV pilot with his friend Ricky Gervais, that was pretty much the goal. When your friend's goofing around, you just anything goes because you're not trying to please anyone. You're just trying to entertain yourselves. Well, that first TV pilot they made, it became a little show called The Office. And it ended up changing both of their lives. The office, you know, through no intention of ours, had a sort of cultural impact to some degree. And I don't know why, but it did. And that was beyond our control. We'll talk about how the original British office was created and why it was tough for the pair to decide what to make next. Now Stephen Merchant is starring in a new series for HBO called Hello, Ladies. It's about his character's frustrating search for love in Los Angeles. We'll talk about the show and about Stephen's worst date ever. Plus, comedy from Mike Kaplan, and I'll play the one song that's absolutely 100% guaranteed to get any dance floor in the world going. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. Just over 10 years ago, Stephen Merchant and his writing partner, Ricky Gervais, changed comedy. Their show, The Office, focused the pain of social interaction into a laser beam. It's grounded, awkward, heartfelt, gut-wrenching humor set the template for most of the great TV comedy of the last decade. Merchant and Gervais still work together. They created the show's extras and Life's Too Short, among other projects. But Merchant's also stepping out on his own. He traveled the U.K. and the U.S. with a stand-up act called Hello, Ladies. And with the help of some writers from the American version of The Office, he's translated it into a new show on HBO. Like his stand-up, it's about his difficulties looking for love. Here's a clip from the show, uh, which is also called Hello, Ladies. Merchant's character striking out in particularly humiliating fashion. Hello, ladies. My name is Stuart. With me, my best mate, Wade. Right there. Hi, Wayne. Wade. Wade. Wade, yeah, as in Roe versus Wade. Uh, it's a famous case about a woman's right to terminate you know her fetus. <laughs> no need to bring up abortion. Uh, do we need to? 
Stephen Merchant, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me here. So, Stephen, we were talking about uh, your height, our heights. You're six foot seven. Um, obviously, you have turned your height uh, to your advantage, both personally and and uh, professionally, given that your profession is a comedian. But I can only imagine that it was less convenient to you when you were an adolescent. No, I mean, I was very self-conscious growing up. Um, I, you know, I, a lot of people when I was young, you know, would mark themselves out from the crowd with, you know, wild haircuts or earrings and, and other you know, or clothing or whatever. And I never had that urge. I, I felt like I was standing out from the crowd, you know, against my will. So I would spend as much time as I could blending in. And um, someone said to me once, is the reason that you went into comedy a way of controlling when people laugh at you? And I don't know if it's is it's that, you know, that direct a link, but I think there's something about that is about kind of using humor to, to sort of own your own awkwardness. Was your height relative to your peers, like, notable the whole time through i mean a lot of people people grow at different times you know what i mean no i just always remember being freakishly tall yeah from from an early and also not being able to uh kind of co-op that into athleticism you know like (laughs) you know like i mean hopeless at basketball frustratingly bad at basketball i mean embarrassing but that was fine you know i i just you know it allowed me to focus more on my drawing of comic strips (laughs) yeah so you know, but it's it's a cliche. I mean, there's a, there's you know every every uh, or a great many of the uh, people that are in comedy have the same kind of story. You know, it's funny though because you know one of the things about stand up comedy specifically, which is something that you did right out of school and then didn't do for you know five or ten years mm-hmm. and then have done again recently, yeah. is that stand ups. One of the reasons that one of the reasons that stand-ups tend to like stand-up is that they have they both have control on stage because they're on stage and have a microphone and the audience doesn't, um, and they get a sort of direct feedback loop from the audience. Right. And you have made your name in radio, which is probably the least feedback form of comedy, uh-huh. um, and you know, and film and television which is just just one step below it. Sure. It, it seems like you're not a dude that's out looking for that the satisfaction no. that you get, which is a real satisfaction. I mean, it feels great. Well, it's weird. I um I, I on I mean, I've done stand-up comedy on and off as you say for many years, and I never the urge was never the sort of buzz of the laughter or the thrill of the crowd or the idea that you'd sort of be carried aloft from the room as a sort of chat. That was never what interested me? It, firstly, I did it because a lot of my heroes were stand-up comedians. So, I, so the the urge for me to do it was was because I sort of admired them and I liked and it seemed like some way of kind of paying your dues if you wanted to be part of comedy. It was never about the sort of buzz of the crowd, and and that remains the case. You know, I I've said to, in the past, and I do feel this is true. Like if if there was a machine that I could perform my act into, and it would sort of tell me if it was good then i would that would be fine because it's sort of it's it's the end it's this sort of exercise of it that's fascinating to me the 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 challenge of it that it's such a difficult thing to do it's of all the things i've done it's it's certainly the hardest so there's something very you know and i don't rock climb and i don't shoot hoops or whatever else so it's sort of it's one of the only things i do that is kind of like <laughs> you said that as though you were speaking in alien language yeah i, I didn't even i was not confident that that was the a phrase <laughs> um 
Yeah, so I was say, I mean, jazz, yeah. you said it like you were you were a guy in the '30s saying jazz cigarettes, right? Exactly. So uh, yeah, so it's 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 not it's not the sort of as I say, it's not the thrill of the roar of the crowd that that draws me back to it. I actually have a clip from your college radio show or university radio show. I was so excited when I read somewhere. That these that there was recordings of this stuff you did in university Jeez. extant um, that I ran to the internet and played something. I think this uh, this is just a little bit that it ex- explains itself pretty well. Nine six three weather check. Uh, of course, it's the uh, weather check on the Steve Show number nine six three. This week, the weather is sponsored by Punctuation Problems Monthly. England and Wales will start. Dry but moisture. Will reach Wales and South. West England, a round midday and spread. E, stay cross. All areas. South West, uh, Lee. Winds will touch gale. Mm. Force, but it should be mild. Out. Look unsettled. Punctuation problems monthly available now. That was quite good. I, I don't remember that. That was pretty funny. That's a pretty solid bit. Yeah, that was all right, wasn't it? Can you tell me about what, when you decided to be... Because the thing is, is I don't know if it's the same in the UK, but I, I worked at a college radio station. People are just messing around. Right. They're just, they're just brought their CD book from home, and they're just yeah. playing their 10 favorite songs and then saying something to their one friend that's listening. Um, and so it's a rare person who's actually taken the time to write an actual bit, which that right. was. Uh, yes. Uh, well, I, yeah, I, I, I did originally stagger into the radio station, uh, with the, the book of CDs and, and no other plan. And then at some point it became like a kind of social, uh, exercise like that. The other voice on there is actually my buddy, Dan, who I've continued doing stuff on, on and off with ever since. Um, and in the end there was about four or five of us. It was like a little posse and we just used it as a, as a reason to get together every Friday afternoon and, and, put this show together and put an an, an unnecessary amount of work into it for, as you say, almost no listeners. Did you get feedback at the time? Did you have, like, fans in the dormitories? No, I never spoke to anyone anyone who heard it except once I went to a party, and it was a campus university, and I went to a party, and, uh, and one girl told me that she listened to it religiously, and that was the only person that I'd ever ever give me any feedback or even had heard of it or even knew what it was and I still failed to score with her <laughs> which I think <laughs> sums up my, my life <laughs> yeah it's Bullseye I'm Jesse Thorne my guest is Stephen Merchant he and his friend Ricky Gervais were the co-creators of the original British version of the sitcom The Office Merchant has also worked with Gervais on the show Extras The Ricky Gervais Show and Life's Too Short Merchant has now co-created and stars in a new series called Hello, Ladies, for HBO. What were you doing when you met Ricky Gervais? Well, um, I was keen to get into radio professionally after doing it at college, and I used to think that maybe it was a good way of... It was a good day job to have that would allow me to do other things in the evening, writing or stand-up and stuff. And, and radio in the UK, unlike radio in the United States, is part of the entertainment industry. Sure. Um, you know, in that, you know, in the United States, you've got Howard Stern and most of the worst of humanity. Oh, really? In okay. the world of right. entertainment radio. And, right, right. Um, you know, and then in, in the UK, there is actual entertainment radio that could lead to a television program. Right, absolutely. And many uh, TV hosts or TV 
comedians have begun life in the radio. Uh, so, yeah, it's a very obvious career path. Uh, and so I read about this new radio station that was opening up in, in London and um, and I sent in my resume and, and bizarrely the, the guy kind of in charge of hiring was Ricky and he just called me up for an interview and, we, and I sort of became his assistant on the show and, uh, and uh, on the radio and he, uh, his, he was responsible for sort of providing speech content, you know, jokes and, and kind of, you know, little bits like you just heard. Uh, f- and so we just started working together. For the station or for, for the station. for his yeah. show? Um, no, he, he didn't have a. Sh- I think he. I mean, maybe a, he. I think he was given a. I think he was given. It's funny now when you think about Ricky's. Um, what happened since? Because he his he was given a show and it was a it was a phone in show, and he was just cripplingly nervous. I, I seem to recall and and sort of said, I don't. Well, I don't really fancy doing this. And so I think he sort of knocked that on the head. And then somewhere on the line, they gave us a show and we and we started doing a show together. But we were backroom boys. We were guys sort of behind the scenes. Do you do you remember the first interview that you had with him on the phone? No, I didn't speak to him on the phone. I, I went up to London and I and I met him and we went for a beer near the radio station. And, um, and, and he basically said to me, uh, listen, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I somehow have, you know... Sweet talk my way into this job. I've no experience of radio. You've had some. If you promise to sort of do the lion's share of the work, I'll make sure that you have a fun time. And and he was right. And I and I did the lion's share of the work. And 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 we had a great blast. It was it was a lot of fun. But I very quickly left. Like I left after about a month and a half uh, to join the BBC because I got a, a better offer. And I very quickly realised that Ricky would probably get us both fired. <laughs> Just because we didn't really know what we were doing, and we and the, and the station could survive perfectly well without us. Were you writing bits for just regular disc jockeys? Like, were you writing jokes about the, the yeah, like, it would be, current you know, events? It, or yeah, something? it would be like there would be some. I remember there was some story about uh, a, 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 an Olympic rowing team had been practicing on the Amazon, and they had capsized, and it was piranha infested water, and we wrote some joke about they were very scared of losing their cocks. <laughs> and so it was a simple, obvious joke. It was just waiting to be done. And we wrote this joke and we handed it to the DJ. And I remember he said, and they're in danger of losing their coxes. So completely ruined the, the one element of the joke, which was the, the play on the word cocks. And he ruined it. And, I, and that happened a number of times where we'd give a joke and we'd hear the DJ massacre it or flag up the punchline. You know, coming up after this, da, 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 a joke about blah, and then you know, it was just—I mean, the worst. And, um, and so we just uh, eventually they let us do our own show, and and, and we kind of um, and we took it from there. But uh, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. Though. The, the station launched the day after Princess Diana died. Wait, I'm still laughing about the idea of <laughs> advance promoting that a right. joke is coming the joke's up. Coming up, yeah. <laughs> When I, I, as I understand it, David Brent, uh, which is Ricky Gervais's character in The Office, mm. um, was sort of a a bit that he would do to amuse himself and you, right? More than it was an idea for a TV show initially. Oh yeah, no, um, yes. When we were working at the radio show, we, uh, as I say, we, we were backroom boys, so we worked in an office in a small office, and Ricky had like a handful of of sort of observations of the kinds of people that you find in those sort of middle management positions. And uh, and so he would just do them occasionally sort of as to, to illustrate a point about certain type of people. 
And I was just very amused by it. And he, I think he had a hand, he had like two or three little things, I recall. And so when I joined the BBC, I, I had to do a training exercise as a, um, I was doing a day where I was learning to direct. And I said to Ricky, look, why don't we put that, those little bits on camera and we can make a little little thing from it. And that was it. He simply did it for me as a favor. He had no intention of it being, he wasn't trying to get on TV. He wasn't trying to become a comedian. He was just, I'll do this as a, it'll be a fun thing to do. And, uh, and we did it and, and, you know, off, off it went really. How did you figure out, uh, the two of you after, you know, you made that little thing and it sort of got a little bit of, uh, got passed around a little bit Mm -hmm. from what I understand. Mm -hmm. Um, and you got a, you ended up getting a television pilot, mm-hmm. um, which was the first of two pilots. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you figure out what the tone of the show was that made it work? Well, uh, when we made this little exercise, uh, I was very aware that we only had about six or seven hours to film something. And, uh, everyone else on the, on the, on the training course that I was on was assigned to do a documentary, a tiny documentary. And some people made a little documentary about the local barber shop or, or a, a truck stop, you know, and, and it was just an exercise to, to train you into kind of directing a, a cameraman and, and being able to interview and all these things. And I just was less interested in that because I wanted to be involved in fiction, not in reality TV. So I said, well, I'll do a, I'll do it like a, more as a fake documentary and um, there wasn't a big game plan. It wasn't like we're going to try and do something and get a TV show. It, it, for some reason, we just – Ricky was very scrupulous about wanting it to feel real, you know, and the documentary form lent itself to that. And so, you know, that was the way we went, just running on instinct. Really. It, there was no game plan. You know, it, that's the thing is like when you – when your friends goofing around, you, there's, you don't – just anything goes because you're not – you're not trying to please anyone. You're just trying to entertain yourselves. And so I think that's what happened there, really. It was just, it was never thought, we never really thought about the audience. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Stephen Merchant. He and his friend Ricky Gervais were the co-creators of the original British version of the sitcom The Office. Did you learn something in between the making the, the first pilot and making the second pilot, the one that ended up becoming the first episode? Yes, because when we made an official pilot... Um, by then, the the TV people had got involved, and it 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 became a lot more rigid. It was less, it didn't have that looseness. It didn't have that. It was like we'd somehow someone had, and partly ourselves as well. Like we were inexperienced, and we'd allowed it to sort of become more sitcommy, you know, and more beginning, middle, and end. And, and we watched it, and we were just, this doesn't seem to have whatever that little demo was that we had. It, it seemed it lacked the spontaneity. It felt more structured and scripted and and so when we did the official pilot that became the first episode we sort of went backwards if you like and we made it feel more scrappy and we made it feel like you know a real documentary they're cobbling together stuff hours of footage they've shot and they're trying to create a narrative out of real life and we wanted it to feel more like that you know so we we tried to have scenes that ended without punchlines or that just kind of I don't know we just tried to bring all of that awkwardness and that and that that lack of slick TV-ness to it, you know, and, and that was our biggest that was our biggest kind of coup. I want to play a little bit from uh, The Office, which was co-created by my guest Stephen Merchant. Um, so in this scene, David Brent, who's uh, played by Ricky Gervais, uh, the other co-creator of the show, 
um, is basically showing off some business cards for a, a new operation he's planning on getting started. Um, it's what I've, you know, I've always wanted to do. It's that, and it's that working. I've had uh, these cards made up. Um, David Brent, assertiveness and guidance training in business. If it's in you, I'll find it. So that's actually what I do, you know. I go along and I just point out what you've already got. I'm like a got a spiritual guide. Uh, the reason I put if it's in you, I find it is if I waste, you know, good time and money looking for it, and I can see it's definitely not in you. I don't want to be sued because you haven't got it. So, you know, you're not gonna get me on that. <laughs> there's there's something really lovely to me about how quiet the office is. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the quietest comedy programs, and you know, obviously David Brent is a character who. Um, is a, a bit blustery, mm-hmm. um, and usually a blustery protagonist is matched by a sort of uh, crazy madcap tone. Right. But the office sort of puts, sort of contrasts him against this quietude, and always leaves a few extra beats. Mm-hmm. Um, were there were there things that that the two of you had seen that had those extra beats? that inspired you to do it? Or was it just trying to recreate this this thing that had just happened and you'd stumbled into? Well, uh, around the same time that we were doing it, the the, the, the first wave of what you might call uh, docu-soap or sort of reality TV uh, constructed documentaries was happening in the UK. And there was endless programs. There was one about a driving school. There was one about a cruise ship. There was a ton of these things where... Um, they were six or eight part series following real people in very mundane situations and that sort of just following pointing cameras at real people had suddenly become vogue um, and you know you see reality TV now and they've and they are they're constantly forcing drama and conflict and they're zeroing in on 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 crazy people or or you know it'll be people that are planning for the apocalypse or it'll be you know what I mean? But but there was a period in British TV where it was very routine stuff. It was, as I say, driving schools or or behind the scenes of a of a hotel or whatever. And and, and so so our show kind of was coincided with that. And we were trying to get some of that mun that mundane everydayness. We were sort of, but also we 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 were just somehow we for some reason we were obsessed with it feeling real. We were just crippled by the idea that it be real. And I don't quite know why. I just, I just, we just, it became this bugbear of sort of endless discussions about like, how would the camera film this? And where was the camera? And if the person was in the room and they knew the camera was in the room, they wouldn't act that way. So we, you know, like just kind of discussions that went round in circles and, and it was exhausting that being so kind of tied to the real. And, and I think probably one of the reasons we ended our show after a couple of seasons was just because we it was it's, it actually becomes a um it was sort of becomes a handcuffs that that that's being slaved to the real and uh and it sort of paid off after a break Stephen merchant will tell us about his own personal worst date it's bullseye from maximumfun.org and npr bullseye is on twitter follow us online at twitter.com slash bullseye
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Stephen Merchant. With his friend Ricky Gervais, he created the original British version of The Office. He also co-created and stars in a new show for HBO called Hello, Ladies. I can kind of imagine what it felt like when The Godfather came out and was a huge success and won Best Picture because obviously everyone involved in making The Godfather had worked all their lives to make a movie like The Godfather with the goal of it being a three-hour movie that wins Best Picture and everyone remembers it, Mm -hmm. right? I can kind of see how everyone would be just mission accomplished. Um, But I wonder what it felt like for the two of you in, you know, year two or year three of The Office as you started to look around and people were starting to say, oh, this isn't just a funny show. This is important with a capital I. Right. And that it hadn't necessarily been your goal to make something important with a capital I. Right. We tried hard to not uh, be influenced by that. Like, I think we, 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 we were very conscious that the danger was to, A, try and give the audience what they wanted, or, or B, uh, to sort of become... Um, self-important and we were very aware of that going into the second series and so we uh we just just took the same approach that we'd done on the first one which was we sort of we just hold ourselves up and and um and the first series we had the approach was let's think about all the things we've experienced in working in offices and let's try and sort of check them off and so in the second series and subsequently that was just the impulse was to was to keep going back to that you know what what were the things we hadn't ticked off yet but for some reason yeah we were we just you know we were keen to put this sort of romance in there uh the things we'd enjoyed as viewers always had that element to it and it was the sort of one time where i it felt like just we had just really good taste you know what I mean? Like we just, we never, we didn't drop the ball. We just had good taste on, on all the decisions we made, really. Um, when the two of you became uh, famous slash successful, I guess uh, similarly successful, uh, Ricky Gervais a little more famous than you, was it difficult to decide what you wanted to do with that? Um, well, I... My, my, my feeling with, with, with I think both of us felt that the office, that if we carried on doing it, it it would become, it would just start to lose its sheen. Like it would be, it would become routine. Like I just think we, I remember thinking we just felt like we'd sort of run out of steam a bit. We, that we'd, we'd sort of said everything we wanted to, and we, and we were worried that we were going to start just doing it for the sake of doing it, and that worried us. And so we want we decided to do something else, and. um I think we were aware that it would be seen as the thing that they did next. But I've always had a very, um, you know, I, I used to be, I'm, I'm sort of a historian of comedy and to some degree. And, and it seems to me that sort of everyone I admire has gone through kind of the peaks and troughs of their career. And it's not until they're sort of in their dotage that people look back and go, well, what a great body of work. And it's they sort of forget you... the missteps, you know, they, they just look at the, all the good stuff and... And the other thing, and the things that didn't work as kind of um, experiments that I, didn't pay off. I've seen you propose this theory, and I think the example that you gave was Stephen Fry, right? 
And the final step on this path is national treasure, mm-hmm. which Stephen Fry has achieved in the UK for being one of the funniest people ever. I mean, right. well earned. Um, and uh, and it involves a period in the desert. Yes. Um, so to speak. Yes. Um, were you worried about a period in the desert or did knowing about the period in the desert give you comfort somehow? Well, it it, it did give me comfort, but also it, what worried me more was, um, you know, this idea that that you have to be bigger and more successful than the thing you've just done. And that that's... When you stop to think about it, it's crazy because if you if you're trying, the office, you know, through no intention of ours, had a sort of cultural impact to some degree, and I don't know why, but it did, and it was beyond our control. It was taken on, and and there were TV commercials that seemed to ape its style, and and David Brent was used in newspapers to illustrate a particular kind of middle manager, and so it it sort of tapped into something, and when, it wasn't an intention. No, at no point did we sit down and say let's try and tap into something. We it just did, and so. The idea of trying to do that again seemed impossible, and it still seems impossible because it's there's some quote, and I don't know who said it, that I can't tell you the secret of success, but I can tell you the secret of failure, and that's to try and please everyone. And that's what the thing that's always crippled me is I just don't know how to please everyone. And and so if I'm constantly trying to make projects which are more successful or have more of an impact or make me more money or make us more famous and that has to somehow escalate every time I do something I just it that just seems like an unnecessary burden and a kind of impossible goal so the only way to for me to think of it was just to sort of just to take like you're always taking sidesteps you're you know and you're not you're not going up in the building you're just going sideways and hoping that you know, portions of your audience come with you. And and so, yeah, when I look at someone like Billy Wilder, you know, and Billy Wilder in the last 20, 25 years of his career, you know, struggled to get a movie made. I don't think he ever got a movie made after about 1980. Um, but he still went to his office every day and wrote and developed things. And, you know, Billy Wilder now is justly regarded as one of the great talents of Hollywood. But there was that period in his life where his movies weren't doing as well and he was starting to seem old hat. And it's just... That's inevitable, you know, and I just and I see that it's inevitable for me and inevitable for all the people I admire. And so I don't know how you combat that, really. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My, my guest is Stephen Merchant. And Stephen, I, I want to play a clip from your stand up special called Hello, Ladies, which is in, in part the basis of your new HBO show mm-hmm. um, of the same name. And uh, this is you talking about one of the big themes of uh, of the TV show, which is essentially struggling with uh, dating and relationships. All right, see if you think this is stingy, right, ladies? I was at, uh, went on a date with a, a girl, and we went to the cinema, classic, right? And she went over to the sort of popcorn store to get some popcorn, right? And I said, uh, I said, bubba, bubba, bubba. no, 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 don't, don't, don't buy it. Just led her to one side like that, right? Open my jacket. <laughs> Hello, Uncle Steve. <laughs> Sorry, she wasn't a relative. I don't know why I said that. Sorry, that's <laughs> a bit weird. Trying to seem conspiratorial. Uh, Hello, Uncle Steve, what's this? In my jacket, lovely bag of butter-kissed popcorn that I bought at the cost cutter on the way there. She said that was stingy, ladies. Would you say that was stingy? Yes! How is that stingy? In the cinema, popcorn, £3.50. I charged her two quid. (laughs) 
why after the um the nice convenient lifestyle of a guy who had a you know, I, I'm sure some kind of points on the deal of the American office, a television program that's run for like 10 years now and is monstrously successful and uh, I'm sure gave you a comfortable lifestyle. Um, did you decide to perform as yourself um, for the first time since essentially since your big break? Well, the phrase I always think of is that terrible phrase that someone like Simon Cowell uses a lot on, on reality TV shows where you know, the contestant comes back and he says, the thing is, Paul, you've just got to get out of your comfort zone. <laughs> you know, you're always singing uh, the, the sort of Dean Martin style standards, but I need to see you singing something contemporary. You've got to get out of your comfort zone. And it was as simple as that for me. It was like I felt like I wanted to wanted the challenge of, of something uh, and stand up. I just felt a bit sort of frustrated that I'd never quite mastered it. And the thing I discovered immediately was that it, I was in a weird position because I hadn't made my name as a stand-up comedian, but people often came to the show knowing who I was. So they, they didn't really know what to expect. So I had to, if you like, to, to define who I was to the audience who and just had a vague idea of who I was. And you chose to do that by uh, focusing on your romantic ineptitude? Well, I just find that the stories that I, that, that I kept coming back to were those stories because they they were and remain the thing I always laugh at hardest in anything, whether it's in a movie or in a stand-up show, or I just find the idea of bad dates or or wooing the opposite sex inherently funny because it's something which occupies everyone everywhere all the time, and it's such a important part of our lives, and... And yet it's inherently comic. There's a You go on a date and there's a tension there, you know, because you both sort of know what the objective is of the other person and you're not necessarily on the same page about that objective. You're, you're putting on a front because the idea of being yourself, we all know, is a nonsense, particularly in the early days of any kind of relationship. You're not being yourself. You're being the best version of yourself. Um, and to humiliate yourself or embarrass yourself while on a date is somehow cripplingly more i don't know it's somehow more embarrassing because the stakes seem higher and they're not they're not high in the in the big sense of things they're not serious stakes but they're stakes because they, it, this could be to do with your future happiness or this could be to do with the mother of your children who knows you know like you you're you're throwing on to that other person so much that it, it's a sort of preposterous situation it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne my guest is Stephen Merchant, a co-creator of the original British version of The Office. He's got a new HBO show called Hello, Ladies. What do you personally, um, I don't want to say change about yourself, but what do you try and focus on and downplay about yourself when you go on a date? Well, I just try and be more um, sophisticated, more urbane. More witty, so you're, what are more you manner, about? more have better manners. Jazz music or something? Uh, I mean, I, certainly, I would, I would consider what um, iPod playlist I was playing. If I picked the girl up in the car, I'd think about what music I was playing. Try and get a sense of maybe what what they, uh, not necessarily what they like, but what they might be impressed by or Wait, intrigued give a, by. Give me a for example. Well, you know, you're trying to assess, you know. Um, you know, you don't want to be too esoteric necessarily. If it's the wrong kind of girl, she's got more mainstream tastes. You don't want to scare her off. You don't want to think, well, you know, what's the? I've had comments where, what's this weird music? 
well, you're in trouble. You know, you're, you've, you've already disappointed your audience straight away. Um, you know, and you have, uh, you know, I have a couple of solid anecdotes that normally get a good response. Um, when do you bring them in? You know, don't don't be too self-deprecating, but be just self-deprecating enough. Um, because uh, I thought of a line the other night. I was in a bar and I was watching these guys, the same kind of sh- uh, beefcake kind of guys hitting on all these girls. And and I thought to myself, would it be fun to go up to one of these girls and say, um, hey, I notice you've been talking to losers all night. Well, if you like talking to losers, I'm the biggest loser here. <laughs> and I thought what was intriguing about it was it's like it was both kind of arrogant and and also undermining of your own of self-confidence <laughs> at the same time. Um, it, but doesn't so that's seem, it doesn't seem like it would work. Well, we shall see. You know, have me on the show again and I'll report back. Um yeah, so there's you know, you so you're it's it's a whole it's a whole production that you're putting on, I think, when you when you go on a date, or certainly the early stages of dating. How close is your character on the show to um you know, genuine experiences that you've had or, or that you or, and your co creators have had? Uh well there's there's a there's there's certainly a lot of stuff that's drawn from real experiences, but the character is more um it is more of a combination of, I mean, from my part, me uh, at different points in my life. You know, the the self consciousness of being uh, seventeen is in there, um, but the sort of a little bit of the kind of arrogance of youth from when you know I was sort of twenty two, thought I understood everything, thought I think I'd got things sussed, and. Um, uh, but also a little of the kind of weariness that I have now. I've, you know, I've, I've played the game too many times now. I, I'm not really willing to do it anymore. You know, the mechanics of it, the 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 sort of the the, the, the sort of the, the dating tricks that people play, and that you know, and that stuff is just. It's not. It's. I'm not talking about like the game style methodology. I'm just simply the fact that you'll text a girl and then she won't write back for two days because she knows that she can't see them too keen. You know, it's just, it's exhausting. You know, it's, and yet, and yet you can't, you're not allowed to cut through it because then you just seem needy or <laughs> desperate or whatever else. And it's, so we're trying to explore all of that stuff in the show. And, and, um, uh, but also, you know, I've one thing that's always amused me, in which the stand-up character has to a degree, is the sort of the arrogant, the arrogant nerd. That I always think is a very funny, funny trait. I saw two guys on a train platform once, and they they look. I think it was around the time of the Matrix. They both had the long leather black coats, but they obviously didn't look like Keanu Reeves. And one was kind of one was the uber nerd, and one was the kind of nerd pal. And they were talking about Star Wars or something, or Return of the Jedi. And and one of them said, "Well, you know, when." And there'll be Star Wars fans who will correct me, but I can't remember exactly what they were saying. But it was something like, well, you know, when when Wedge died in Empire Strikes Back, and the other end went, sorry, what? He went, no, I'm just saying, when Wedge died in Empire Strikes Back, well, I don't remember Wedge dying in Empire Strikes Back. Uh, I remember him dying in Return of the Jedi. And and it was like, really? This is how you win in the in the game of life by bringing up your superior knowledge of Star Wars? And that seemed to me the, the perfect encapsulation of like the arrogant nerd. the pers- and, and there's something about that you know, with women kind of thinking that that you can impress them because, you know, I mean, like my character is a web designer, you know, and he wants to impress them because he's working a lot on CSS um, framework integration, you know, whatever. And so sort of trying to impress people with things that aren't, you know, naturally cool and sexy. So, um, which is the same, which goes back to me drawing those comic books and hoping that 
some girl would be like, mm, what's this What's this comic book that you're drawing here, uh, Steve? Tell me more. And it never worked, and they never were interested, and why should they be? Are girls impressed that you're a successful uh, television writer, stand-up comedian, and actor? Mm, I'm sure some are. Or are you just running out into the crowd, as, as your character does on the show, with a, with a you're doing to HTML what, what Bill Gates was to MS-DOS or right. something like that? I Pr- pretty much, yeah. I, I, that's... I mean, uh, Los Angeles is is a is a um, is a difficult place to try and impress people with your credentials in show business because it seems like every other person is in show business. So, so yeah, it's. Um, but. Um, so you've been I, doing more dating in Des Moines. No, I just, I just, I mean, I, you know, wherever, wherever, wherever I, I am. Whether it's in London or ever, you know, you you're always trying to use whatever assets you have. Uh, everyone's just in the dating world. Everyone's just trying to raise the, their head above the pack, aren't they? That's some people can do it naturally through good looks. Some people do it through money. Some people do it through flashy cars, and some people do it through you know hoping that someone will recognise you from the TV. My my method happens to be standing next to a billboard that has my face on it, <laughs> waiting for girls to walk by. I mean, I'm sorry if that seems inappropriate. Or opportunistic. Um, I, I want to ask you one last question, and I hope you'll forgive me for it being a kind of a cliched one. Um, but w- what was uh, the worst date that you ever went on? Well, I, I, the one that always strikes me, and, and it's not, it wasn't um, a, a sort of agonizing outcome. It's just, it encapsulated the thing we were talking about, which is you, you try to be something you're not, and and that ultimately almost certainly will backfire and i remember i tried to impress a girl by grandly declaring while we were already on a date that we should then go to a casino and i'd been to a casino the week before because my agent had had uh had a party at a casino and i had to join in order to attend the party so i had a membership card to a casino having only been once and not knowing anything about gambling and um and I said, let's go, let's go to the casino. And so we jumped in a cab and we had to go all the way back to her house and she had to put on a fancier dress. And we went all the way to my house and I put on a suit. And we got all the way to the casino, by which point I was already down like 40 quid. I mean, it was very expensive just to get there. And we walked in line and there was a kind of line of people at this casino. And I walked up and I threw down my kind of membership card and I said, yeah, just me and the chick. And they looked at the card and they went, um, sorry, you're barred. And I went, pardon me? <laughs> and they went, you're, you're banned, you can't come in. I went, what are you talking about? I've only been once before. I said, well, why can't I come in? They said, we don't have to tell you the reason because it's a private club. Please leave. And there were two things. One was I wanted to know why I'd been barred. <laughs> to this day, I don't know. They refused to tell me. And secondly, I had to then go back down the line and say to this girl who's now wearing an expensive um, dress that we can't go to the casino. And I remember we... I remember thinking that she'd either respond with laughter or just humiliation. And she responded with humiliation. And I remember we were both sat in a kind of late night cafe eating bacon sandwiches. (laughs) And I was in a suit and she was in like a ball gown. And I never saw her again. And, uh, and the girl I can, that's fine. But why was I banned from the casino? (laughs) What had I done? I'd only been once. It doesn't make sense to me. And I honestly, I swear I was not rude or violent. Were you I counting didn't steal. cards? I wasn't counting cards. I didn't know how to count cards. I still don't. It remains one of the great Even mysteries. Even now you don't know no how to idea. count cards. No idea. No <laughs> idea.
<laughs> well, Stephen Merchant, I, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Stephen Merchant's new show on HBO is called Hello, Ladies. It, it premieres September 29th. I'm Jesse Thorne, the host of Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Bullseye is now airing on KPCC. That means Southern Californians can turn on their radios and hear the show every Saturday afternoon. That's cause for celebration, right? So join me at the Crawford Family Forum for a live taping of Bullseye. I'll sit down with Saturday Night Live alumnus Bill Hader, plus a bunch of other very special guests, including music and comedy. Friday night, October 25th at KPCC's Crawford Family Forum in Pasadena. For more information and tickets, go to kpcc.org slash forum. Hey, gang. You can subscribe to the Bullseye Podcast at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're all about the best stuff in pop culture. And this week, we're checking in with LA Times blogger and book critic Carolyn Kellogg to get some best bets from the world of literature. Hey, it's good to see you again, Carolyn. Hi, Jesse. Nice to see you. Let's start, as we so often do, with some Syrian poetry (laughs) Um, and uh, a book of the collected poems of the Syrian poet Adonis. 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 Um, I'm guessing that there is a significant proportion of our audience who is unfamiliar with his work. So maybe you could uh, give us a little background on on who he is, because he's actually a very major figure. He's uh, he's about 83 years old, and he was uh, born in Syria and was like a normal old Syrian guy and was in the military. And then he got thrown into jail because he was in the Socialist Party because it was the 50s. And then he got out of jail and he was like, well, this kind of sucks. And he moved to Lebanon. And his uh, career as a poet and as an editor started. And uh, poetry, when he came into it, was very formal in Arabic. And he sort of, like a lot of people who became artistically well-known in the 60s, like kind of busted everything out. So he's tried all these different forms. Like he does short little things that are really lyrical. He did like two books of epic poetry in the 70s that were like 400 pages long, like these huge long odes. Um, He's really interesting, and he's my best bet for the Nobel Prize in Literature this year, which will be announced in October, I think. What is it like to read his works in English? Sort of like Dylan, you can hit on something that you like, then stick with it, because he's tried so many different forms and he's been working for 60 years. But it's beautiful and personal, physically in the body, or about light, or about family, things that you don't have to have visited Syria to understand. Uh, His book is called Selected Poems. Let's change gears and talk about uh, the new Jonathan Lethem novel, which is called Dissident Gardens. Always a major literary event. So tell me a little bit about it. Um, Jonathan Lethem, as you know, is a MacArthur Genius Award-winning novelist, and um, he has written 
uh, his first book that's set in the 1950s, and it's set in Queens, and um, it spans three generations of a lefty family, like a mom who's like a super 1930s commie stalwart who keeps getting thrown out of the party because she misbehaves, and then her daughter, and then her daughter, the next generation after her daughter. What do you like about it? Well, he is both a beautiful writer. He spins these great sentences and also really interesting. I was wondering when I first heard about this book if anybody would really care about commies in the 50s. And I think with all that we've seen with like Occupy and stuff that people really are thinking about those political ideas without the labels attached anymore. And that's at the heart of this. But none of the people are pure believers. Like everybody's conflicted and is getting thrown out of things at the wrong time. The whole idea of being a red diaper baby does seem like a like a relic from another era now. I mean, it's as you know, it's 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 just something from another world, um, right? But there, you know, there were all those people who camped out in New York last fall uh, who were saying that capitalism isn't working right, and I think that there may be a new generation of red diaper babies coming up in fifteen or twenty years. Maybe they're a, a little more anarchist and a little less uh, a little less Leninist or something like that. The, and the one of the next generation in this book is a guy who grows up to be a contrary academic who's like four hundred pounds and has this huge head of dreads. So. You can see him in Occupy, maybe. Carolyn Kellogg's recommendations this week. Selected poems, uh, poems from the Syrian poet Adonis, uh, which coincidentally also her pick to win the Nobel Prize for Literature, and Dissident Gardens, the new novel from Jonathan Lethem. Uh, You can find Carolyn's writing in the Los Angeles Times and in the LA Times Literary Blog. Thanks, Carolyn. Hello, I'm Judge John Hodgman. And I'm bailiff Jesse Thorne. Can you force your girlfriend to listen to heavy metal music? Is a machine gun a robot? Is it okay to take coupons out of the garbage if you're Canadian? What should you do if your parrot attacks your husband? Can you prove that Crank 2 is a good movie? Only one man can decide. Judge John Hodgman. If you have a case for the judge's court, visit MaximumFun.org slash JJHo. If you just want to listen in, find us on the web or free in iTunes. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Comedian Mike Kaplan loves to dissect the strange ways we use our words. In fact, he has a master's degree in linguistics. On his recent album, Meat Robot, Mike complains about the way in which one of his friends asks for advice. I have this other friend who has a problem, and the problem this friend has is that whenever he has a problem, he always claims that it's a friend that has the problem and not him, so that person doesn't exist. I'm talking about me. You understand? I... I'm trying to tell you. You know how people will do that? Like a woman will try to get some advice. She'll be like, ah, I have a friend. She's pregnant. Her baby is inside my uterus. Ah, hers. I ruined it, you know? So this happened. A friend came up to me and said, Mike, I have a problem. I think that my friend is sleeping with my wife. And I was like, okay, I think I can figure this one out. Do you mean you think that you are sleeping with your wife? And he said, no, I think that you are sleeping with my wife, my friend. And I was like, okay. So that's actually a story about how I once slept with my own wife. 
And that joke is called Fight Club. So thanks for listening. Oh, you guys, you guys. You guys might be too nice. Riddle me this, audience. Riddle me this. That's what the Riddler says when he tells you a riddle. But he's saying to riddle, he's saying riddle me. And you're like, oh, do I, rid- I riddle you? This? Wait, that? Who riddles whom what? Is that the riddle? Who, who is riddling whom? Who I do to you? You to me? Who is the riddle? You're the Riddler, but I give you the riddle? You give me the riddle? I'm the riddle? Who's the riddle? What is the riddle? Is this the riddle? I don't know. And that's where the phrase riddled with bullets came from, I think. So, you know, because people were like, bang, I don't want to deal with this anymore. Mike Kaplan. That's Mike spelled M-Y-Q. His recent live stand-up comedy album is called Meat Robot. You can find it at MikeKaplan.com. Every week on the show, we like to close with a recommendation from me, your host. It's The Outshot. There is only one greatest pop song of all time, and I'm going to be honest with you because I think you deserve it. The race isn't even close. Number two is like a thousand billion quadrillion miles behind. The greatest pop song of all time is a song that makes literally anyone happy. You could play it for Israelis and Palestinians. You could play it for deep Amazonians who've never heard a record or for all I care. You could play it for mole people deep under the crust of the earth and you would get one reaction. Happiness. Absolute clapping, dancing, wide smiling joy. It's a song so good, it even stands up to a ridiculous introduction like that one. Nick, if you would, drop the needle. It's hard to say what makes this song so perfect, besides that it's perfect. One of the great things about pop is that there doesn't have to be a reason, just a feeling. And this one feels right. It's a great Motown band, a carefully crafted tune by the corporation, and Michael Jackson, the greatest ever. At 10, you could hear the joy he took in music. His vocal isn't just a statement. Michael was always too vulnerable for that. It's more of a question, an invitation, an invitation to join him in the feeling of warmth and escape that we get from pop music. Come on, doesn't get any better than this. Actually, you know what? Nick, just turn it up. I want to enjoy it. That's my outshot.
That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Henry Malofsky. Interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Bullseye's theme music is provided by the Go Team, thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me at the email address jesse at MaximumFun.org. Which brings us to the corrections portion of our program. Two weeks ago on this show, I described a huge land beast famous for roaming the plains of North America as a buffalo. Buffaloes are a real animal, but they don't live in North America, I learned, thanks to a listener email. The animals I was referring to are known only as bison. So, my sincere apologies to any bison who were listening. That's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.